Well, welcome to uh, our worship service on this, this good Friday. It's good to have a lot of children in our, both of our services today. I found it amusing at the first service when I went out in the hallway and I saw the strollers lined up along the, uh, the edge of the, the hallway. But it's, it's, wonder, it's a privilege to be able to gather together and to celebrate what the Lord has accomplished on this, this special Friday, this good Friday. Today is a day of contrasts as we celebrate what we know is going to happen on Sunday, but we also mourn what happened to our Lord and Savior on, on the Friday. I know we'll be enriched. We're going to spend some time in the Gospel of John again in the 19th chapter. We're doing a little sermon series throughout Easter called King of Kings. And I'm just going to lead us in prayer, and then we'll, we'll get right into uh, our study of John 19. Our Heavenly Father, we're grateful for the privilege that you have bestowed upon us for us to address you as our Father, which means we are your sons and your daughters. We are in a relationship with you. We are your family. And collectively, we are your bride. And Christ is the groom. And we look forward to the day when the wedding between Christ and his church will be celebrated in your eternal kingdom and we will be with you forevermore, and all darkness and sorrow and suffering will cease, and evil will be consigned to eternal damnation. And those who have received the righteousness of Christ will reign victorious for all of eternity. We believe this to be true, and it anchors us in our faith, especially in a wobbly world, a world that is marked by so much immorality and disease and destitution godlessness. We've gathered on this special Friday because we want to commemorate the sacrifice that Christ made for us. We know it to be true. Our lives have been transformed by it. Christ is the hope of the world. And yet in his death and his suffering, we also see our, our guilt, our sin, that he atoned for. We mourn that we have rebelled against you and disobeyed you many times, but we also rejoice that through Christ our sins have been separated as far as the east is from the west, never to meet, and that, and that we have been justified, and we, have, we now have a standing with you. We have citizenship papers into your eternal kingdom. Father, I pray that you would enrich our minds and hearts and form us how to live. May this be a morning of great worship and adoration. Move in our hearts and minds. Center us back on Christ. Fill us with joy, we pray in Christ's name. Amen. We often talk in the Christian vernacular, in the public vernacular, about contrast. We have contrasting temperatures. We talk about contrasting colors. We have contrasting political ideologies, contrasting religious ideologies in our culture. The word, the word contrast in the Webster's Dictionary means to display the differences between. So you have one thing, and you have another thing that's dissimilar, and you, you're contrasting them. You're comparing the differences between these two things, or these two ideas. And in many respects, Good Friday is all about contrasts. 
I mean, even in the name, we call it Good Friday, even though what happened on Good Friday was very bad. But it was also good, because we know what Christ accomplished. So there's good and there's bad in what we call Good Friday. Last Sunday, which was Palm Sunday, we looked at the scriptures and were reminded that Christ lays claim to the throne of Israel, to the throne of the world, and to the throne of each of our lives as individual people. And today we're going to look at Jesus laying down his life for us. But in the gospel narrative that I've selected to preach on, which is John 19, verses 17 through 37, I want to draw out from the text the contrasts that we see here. We're introduced to several different individuals and groups, and there's a contrast between them. There's a contrast between the thieves on the cross. There's a contrast here between Pilate and the Jewish hierarchy. There's a contrast between the soldiers on the ground and the Christ on the cross. And there's a series of spiritual lessons for us to learn from these contrasts as we explore them. We're going to start by looking at verses 17 through 22. And here we see that Jesus' death solicits mixed responses. So I'll read verses 17 through 22 for you. Follow along in your Bibles, and then we'll, we'll draw out some lessons for our benefit. John chapter 19, verse 17. And he went out bearing his own cross. This was a common practice when a man was crucified, he would be given the, the, the top piece of the cross, the horizontal beam of the cross. And it was his responsibility to drag it through the streets of Jerusalem. Bear in mind that Jesus' back had already been opened up like a plowed field through a series of whippings he'd received. He would have a thorn crown pressed into his scalp, and yet he was responsible to drag this wooden beam through the streets of Jerusalem. And I know, you know, in church we like to have a sanitized vision in our mind, perhaps even of the crucifixion. I'm not trying to plant images in your mind that you won't appreciate. But Roman crucifixions did not occur on clothed victims. Jesus was stripped absolutely naked from head to toe. It was a shameful, embarrassing act. In Christian art, we often add the loincloth, you know, for purposes of modesty. But that's not how Jesus was crucified. He was embarrassed. He was humiliated. He was beaten. And this is the introduction to his journey to the cross. So he bears his own cross to the place called the place of the skull which in Aramaic is called Golgotha. There they crucified him, and with him two others, one on either side, and Jesus between them. So Jesus is in the center, and there on the left and the right. Pilate, the Roman governor, also wrote an inscription and put it on the cross. It read, Jesus of Nazareth, the King of the Jews. Many of the Jews read this inscription, for the place where Jesus was crucified was near the city, the Jewish capital, in other words. Think about Palm Sunday and his claim to be the king of the Jews. And it was written in Aramaic, in Latin, and in Greek. So the chief priests of the Jews said to Pilate, do not write the king of the Jews, but rather 
this man said, I am the king of the Jews. In other words, don't make the statement declarative, but make it indicative of his fake claim. That's what they wanted. They wanted, an, they wanted the sign to be edited. A pilot answered, what I have written, I have written. Jesus is taken to Golgotha. In our old hymnology, we often refer to it as a hill, but the Bible doesn't actually teach that. It doesn't say it's a hill. It doesn't say Calvary was a hill. It doesn't say Golgotha was on a hill. When I was a kid, I used to love the old rugged cross on a hill far away. Well, it might have been a hill. It might not have been a hill. The Bible doesn't tell us that. But we do know that he's taken outside of what at the times were the city limits, symbolizing his ostracism from the community. He's taken outside to a place of desolation. Now, it's likely, we don't know this for sure, but it's likely that the place that Jesus was crucified is now inside the city limits because one of the uh, Roman kings, Agrippa, would later move the city wall out to encompass a larger portion of the surrounding territory. It might be at the place that is now the Church of the Holy Sepulchre in Jerusalem. We don't know that for sure. And even if that was a hill, Islamic invaders, I believe during the period of the Crusades, came in and they, they hacked down a tomb in that area with pickaxes, flattened it out because they wanted to erase any possibility for Christians to venerate that location. So we don't know exactly where Jesus was crucified, but at the time it was in proximity to the, the capital city, the one that just a few days earlier he had laid claim to being the king of. Now apart from Jesus, who obviously is the central figure in the gospel narrative, there are other individuals mentioned. There are thieves mentioned, Pilate is mentioned, and the Jewish chief priests are mentioned as well. And they all serve to, to help us to see the contrasts of responses to Christ in the Gospels. Now the thieves, this particular passage doesn't give us the full picture of the thieves, but we know as we read the other Gospels that there were two thieves, one on the left and one on the right, and they were both sinners because all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. We don't know if they were political prisoners or justly deserving of crucifixion. Maybe the crucifixion that they received was an over-the-top response. Maybe it was appropriate to their crimes. We don't know that. But we do know that as we look in our mind's eye at those three crosses, that there was an innocent man in the middle and a guilty man on the left and a guilty man on the right. And one man cries out to Christ and asks for forgiveness. And Christ forgives him and says, today you will see me in paradise, which by the way helps us to understand that when you die in Christ, you don't fall asleep and just go into a place of nothingness. You, when you die and close your eyes in death, you open your eyes in the presence of the Lord. But the other criminal refused to repent and died in his sins and was sent to a place of damnation. So in this picture of Christ and the cross, we look at the two thieves, and what we actually see in the two thieves is the whole of humanity. All of us have sinned. All of us are justly deserving of death. 
All of us are separated from God. Some repent and find life and healing and hope in Christ. Some refuse to repent in their stubborn obstinance and are cast, cast into the lake of fire forever and ever in the end of all things. It's a good reminder to us to, to analyze and assess which thief best represents me. We're all thieves in that sense. We're all sinners. You're one or the other. You're a sinner. You're going to face death one day and you're going to face judgment. Have you put your faith in Christ for your salvation? Or do you continue to thumb your nose at him? The second contrast we see in the text is the Jewish elite versus the actions of Pilate. Now, I don't want you to think in any way, shape, or form that Pilate was innocent. He wasn't innocent. He was complicit in the crucifixion of Christ. He could have stopped it. He could have stopped it. But we see in the Gospels that he was, he was reluctant. He was reluctant to send Christ to the cross. Ultimately, he's guilty because he permitted it to happen. But he, he's reluctant in the events leading up to the crucifixion. And he's clearly reluctant even during the crucifixion because he has a sign made up. And you can imagine, this would have been a pretty large sign because it contained the declaration of Christ's lordship and he, he had it written out in three distinct languages. He had it written out in Aramaic, sort of a, a broader language to Hebrew so that the Jews who were at the foot of the cross could read. This is Jesus of Nazareth, the king of the Jews. And then he had it written out in Latin so that the Roman officials could read it. And then he had it written out in Greek, which was the lingua franca of the Mesopotamian and Mediterranean worlds, so that every, anyone else who happened to be there that didn't speak Aramaic or didn't speak Latin could also see it. And there's also some irony in the sign, because the sign is true. It's a declaration of the, the cosmic, universal kingship of Christ that he is king of all nations, all languages, all people groups. There's some irony in the sign that was fixed to the cross of Christ. The Jews, of course, don't like this. They, they, they want to make sure that everyone understands this is sarcasm. This is an, another attempt to belittle Jesus' claims. But Pilate says, no, the sign is going to stay. One commentator calls this Pilate's psychological revenge on the Jewish hierarchy for forcing his decision. It's a way of kind of giving it back to them a little bit, sticking a dagger in their side. Now, the reason why I emphasize this event in this chapter is for this reason. We know little of Pilate's ethnic background. History has virtually no records of Pilate. From what we understand, he was recalled after this event back to Rome and may have gone into retirement. But we, we do not know his ethnicity. Some have suggested he was an Italian Roman. Some have suggested he was born in what is now Scotland. He was a Scotch Roman. We don't know. But one thing we do know about Pilate is that he wasn't Jewish. He wasn't raised by Jewish parents. He wasn't raised in Torah school. He had not had exposure to years and years and years of biblical teaching. 
He was not part of the Sanhedrin. He was not a man that grew up in a quote-unquote believing home. He was a true Gentile. And yet we see a, a tad bit more awareness of right and wrong, of righteousness versus deviancy in Pilate compared to the Jewish chief priests who'd been raised on the word of God, who'd been taught and instructed in the way of God, who should have known better. So if you were to administer a theological test to the chief priests, and the same theological test to, to Pilate, we know the chief priests would have probably scored A's on the test, and Pilate would have scored a, an E minus. And yet, here we have this contrast, the people of God, the leaders of God's people, participating in this deviant, atrocious action. And Pilate, not innocent by any means, but holding back the evil a little bit, pu pushing back against it, questioning it. Even in the conversation he had with Christ, there's clear evidence in the scriptures that he wasn't in any way, shape, or form a believer in the guilt of Christ. Some branches of the ancient Christian church even went on to teach that Pilate became a Christian at some point after this event. We don't know that to be true. But one of the lessons for us to consider, it's a good reminder that a knowledge of God is not necessarily equal to righteousness before God. There's many people, even in the Christian church, their minds are packed full of Bible truth. But it just doesn't seem to manifest itself too often. They, 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 may, be marked, they may be marked by deviancy. They may be marked by unrighteousness. They're, they're caught in addictions and sins. They're, they're blasphemers. So the challenge for, for each of us is to make sure that we are not just knowledgeable of God, but we are walking in the path that God has a sign for us that we are growing in righteousness. You know as well as I do that when your anti-Christian friends find out you go to church, one of the things they often say about Christians is, oh, you guys are a bunch of hypocrites. And there's some truth to that. We all are on, on a certain level. How many of us can say that we absolutely live out our faith commensurate to our belief systems? Of course, we all have a bit of hypocrisy in us, and this is why we confess our sins on a regular basis and ask for God to forgive us of our unrighteousness. But there's also some truth to their allegation and that there's many Christians, you know, they're, they're talking about the gospel, they're sharing their faith, they're telling their friends to go to church and you find out they're having an adulterous relationship or they're porn addicts or they're addicted to substances or they're blasphemers or if you meet one of their coworkers, a the person's like, that, that person goes to your church? Have you ever had that experience? I didn't, I didn't know they were a Christian. So let's make sure that our walk matches up to our talk. There's a contrast here between the quote-unquote people of God who are acting like the people of darkness and a man of darkness that was demonstrating a little bit, a little bit of sensitivity to morality and righteousness. And then there's also a contrast between Jesus on the cross and the soldiers at the foot of the cross. Jesus' love is contrasted to the sinner's hardened heart. In the 23rd verse and following, the Bible tells us, 
When the soldiers had crucified Jesus, they took his garments. And they divided them into four parts, one for each soldier. So how many soldiers does that mean were there? <laughs> four. Also his tunic. So this is the fifth piece. But the tunic was seamless, woven in one piece from top to bottom. So it was a, it was a nice article of clothing. And so they said to one another, let us not tear it, but cast lots for it to see whose it shall be. Let's have a gambling match to see who gets the tunic. This was to fulfill the scripture, which says they divided my garments among them, and for my clothing they cast lots. So the soldiers did these things. But, here's the contrast, standing by the foot or by the cross of Jesus were his mother and his mother's sister, Mary, the wife of Clopas, and Mary Magdalene. A lot of Marys, obviously. And when Jesus saw his mother and the disciple whom he loved, meaning John, who's writing this gospel narrative, who was called the disciple whom Jesus loved at the Last Supper, he said to his mother, Woman, behold your son. And then he said to the disciple, Behold your mother. And from that hour, the disciple took her to his own home. Five men were typically assigned to be part of the execution squad in a Roman crucifixion. There was the, the captain, the chief soldier, and then there would be four underlings that would do his bidding. And these five men would participate in the execution of the, the, the criminal, the, the person that was to be crucified, and as a sort of tip, if you will, a bonus for performing the crucifixion, they would get to divvy up the five items of clothing that a typical Jewish man would wear. A Jewish man would wear a turban, he would wear sandals, so that's two pieces. He would wear an inner garment, an outer garment, and a sash that was tied at the side. And the sash was folded in such a way that it could also serve as a, a money belt where you could store items in the, in the waistband of your, your, uh, your garment. So these items, we know, were then divvied up among these four soldiers. But when it gets to the, the tunic, being a an extra special tunic, there's a bit of a debate about who's, who's going to get it. And so there's a gambling match that takes place between these, these four men. Now this is included in part to remind us of the fulfillment of scripture that Jesus satisfied in his capital execution. The writer here references Psalm 22 verse 18. In Psalm 22, verse 18, the context is, is that David is lamenting the challenges of life. And in Psalm 22, 18, he, he mentions this notion of them gambling for my, my clothing. Now, it's, it's really important for us to understand in biblical studies, so we neither over-interpret or under-interpret the scripture, that the word fulfillment doesn't mean one for one. It doesn't mean one for one. It can simply refer to a, 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 a similarity a similar pattern, a similar idea, a similar event. So in Psalm 22, David is talking about David. But we know David is symbolic, in a way, of the future line of Christ. He's a, he's a form of a, 
a lesser Christ, a, a lesser anointed one, a lesser savior for his people, Jesus would come from the line of David as the son of David, as he's called, the messianic king, the savior of the world. So the author is drawing parallels between the original Davidic king and the Davidic king that we know as the Lord Jesus Christ. Now in this event, there's this contrast. So we have these heartless soldiers at the foot of the cross bartering and gambling for Jesus' belongings. Now let's just pause for a moment and, and think about the modern era. And we'll pick some, some, some examples that are nowhere near as heinous. But imagine, for example, that you are an heir of someone's property or estate, and that person dies. And you are one of many heirs, and you, you organize a funeral, and you're all at the, the funeral home, and you're standing around the casket, and guests are there watching. How, how inappropriate would it be? Could you think of anything more inappropriate than for you to start arguing with your brothers and sisters about who's gonna inherit grandma's rocking chair? Or going to inherit the house, or going to inherit the car? I mean, you think that is the most inappropriate, badly timed conversation you could possibly have. Imagine that you're a paramedic, and, and you're with a team of four or five paramedics. They're, they're called to a, an accident scene, and there's a pileup of vehicles, and people are dead everywhere. And, and instead of helping people, you start to have conversations. Well, I wonder what this, this car's gonna go for. I mean, the people are dead. It's, it's actually not that badly damaged. Uh, what do you think I might be able to get it for from the, from the insurance company? Can you imagine how inappropriate that would be? How wicked that would be? Well, we'll amp that up. And here we have Jesus bleeding out on the cross. And what are the, his executioners doing? They're trying to figure out who gets his undergarment. I mean, you can't think of a more inappropriate, more heinous, more wicked thing for them to be doing in the moment. And it, it highlights their callous hearts. But lest you're too hard on the Roman executioners, it also highlights our calloused hearts apart from Christ. By nature, we have hearts of stone. And it's only through the work of the Holy Spirit, we see this in Joel 2 and Acts 2, that God gives us hearts of flesh, softened hearts. Where does that come from? It comes from Christ. In contrast to the Roman executioners, Jesus is on the cross. And Put yourself, if you can, in some way, at least in part, in his position. He, he's on the cross physically. His feet have been turned at a 90-degree angle, and there's a nail driven through the heels of his feet into the vertical beam of the cross. His hands have nails driven through them into the horizontal beam of the cross. His back has been opened up like a freshly plowed field. He's been on the cross for hours. He has a crown of thorns on his head. He's been fed sour wine on a couple of occasions up till now. And in all of that, what is Jesus doing? He's looking down and he's thinking to himself, my mother's a widow. Joseph is not mentioned in the narrative, so presumably he's died. My mother's a widow. There's one of my best friends. I want to make sure my mother's well taken care of. And so he assigns his mother to his 
friend John and John to his mother while he's being executed naked before his mom. Here we have this dramatic, dramatic consequence, or contrast rather, between sinful man and the righteous Messiah, who even in his suffering has compassion for those around him. It also reminds us of the spiritual bond that exists between true believers, and that Mary is assigned to John as his new mother, and John is assigned to Mary as her new son, even though they're not biologically related. Now, after this, the Bible says, Jesus, knowing that all was now finished, said to fulfill the scripture, I thirst. This is the third time he'd be given wine. A jar full of sour wine stood there, maybe vinegar, maybe old wine, or it might just refer to the cheap, most basic, run-of-the-mill wine that the soldiers would drink. We don't know specifically. And they took a sponge full of sour wine on a hyssop branch. A hyssop tree is not very tall, so this, this, the visual images of Christ on a 30-foot cross are inaccurate. He was probably just off the ground a few feet. And they take a hyssop branch, and they put a, a sponge on it, they dip it in this cheap wine, and they, they give it to Christ. And when Jesus had received the sour wine, he said, it is finished. And he bowed his head and gave up his spirit. Why did Jesus take a final sip of wine when he was just about to die? He was just about to die. What's the point of having more liquid given to you? There's no point. He doesn't extend his life. He takes the wine. He says it's finished. And he dies. Because there's something symbolic about wine. And by the way, this sermon that I'm preaching today is going to serve as our reflection for the Lord's Supper this morning, which is where this is all headed, as we commemorate Christ's sacrifice for us. But before I get there, let me just say this, that it's in this very moment, think of the timeline of history. The world's been here for thousands of years. It's in this very moment Not a month before, not a month after, not a thousand years before, not a thousand years after. It's in this very moment when Jesus says, it is finished, that release from the eternal consequences of our disobedience to God is made permanently available to us. It's in this moment. This is the the center of history, if you will, This is the moment when the full atonement of Christ for sin is accomplished in the Lord Jesus' death on the cross. Now, in this process of being crucified, you know, Jesus had lost a lot of blood. He'd been exposed to the elements. He was thirsty. He'd been given this sour wine. The writer is careful to quote Psalm 69, 21 as a a backdrop to this. But why? Why did Jesus take the wine. Well, perhaps, perhaps this act is included to remind us, as the Bible teaches us, that Christ drank the full cup of God's wrath poured out on him for the sins of the world. And it's also a reminder to us as we receive the Eucharistic meal, even in the modern church, 
as we participate in the Lord's Supper. That the precious blood of Jesus Christ symbolized in that wine was spilled out for us. Now, here is the end of the ordeal, and it's, it's actually kind of laughable. It's, it's laughable how this unfolds. It says, since it was the day of preparation, what are they preparing for? The Sabbath. It was, it was in the evening, and the Sabbath started at 6 o'clock on Friday night. So this is preparing for the Sabbath, and especially for the Passover, since it was a day of preparation, and so that the bodies would not remain in the cross on the Sabbath, for that Sabbath was a high day, the Jews asked Pilate that their legs might be broken, that they might be taken away. Now, you've probably read this many times. Have you thought about how ridiculous this request is from the Jews to Pilate? Like these evildoers knew full well that they had sanctioned the capital execution of a completely innocent man. They had violated God's laws. They had borne false witness against him. They had paid off one of his former disciples with blood money. And what are they concerned about? Well, we don't want to violate the Sabbath. You know, know, God forbid that we violate the Sabbath laws. I mean, we, we want to make sure we cross our T's and dot our I's when it comes to our religious observances. Yeah, we just put a guy to death who's completely innocent, but you know, the Sabbath's coming. Folks, this, this is the, the final destination of false religion apart from conversion. This is where it leads in every religion. False religion apart from conversion leads to this kind of hypocrisy. It leads to not being able to see the truth right in front of your eyes. It leads to this spiritual blindness, this obstinacy. This inability to separate truth from error. And it, it's sad, but it's also a joke at the same time in this, in this text to read about their, their hyper-concern. Don't want to violate the Sabbath. Well, we just put Jesus to death, but let's get on to the Sabbath. And so the soldiers came, and they broke the legs of the first and of the other who'd been crucified with him. So both the thieves are still alive, and both of them have their legs broken. But when they came to Jesus, they saw that he was already dead, and they did not break his legs. Why do we need to know that? But one of the soldiers pierced his side with the spear, and at once there came out blood and water. In other words, all of his blood was literally shed before us. He who saw it has borne witness. His testimony is true. And he knows that he is telling the truth that you may also believe. This is the interpretive statement that John puts in, putting his stamp of approval on it and saying, I actually saw this. I was there when he died. I was there when the spear went into his side. I was there when the legs of the two criminals were broken. For these things took place that the scripture might be fulfilled. Not one of his bones will be broken. And again, another scripture that says, they will look on him whom they have pierced. Jesus' bones remained unbroken to symbolize his role as the Passover lamb. When the Jews met to celebrate the Passover, you were not permitted to break the bones of the Passover lamb. Jesus is the ultimate and final Passover lamb. And so his bones remain unbroken. 
But there's a second reason why Jesus' bones remained unbroken, and it's because it symbolizes God's favor poured out upon him. The psalmist tells us in Psalm 34, verses 19 and 20, Many are the afflictions of the righteous, but the Lord delivers them, him out of them all. He keeps all his bones. Not one of them is broken. Affliction will slay the wicked. And those who hate the righteous will be condemned. The Lord redeems the life of his servants. None of those who take refuge in him will be condemned. Now this is not to say that there haven't been many righteous people in history who have not had their bones broken. But Christ is the true righteous one of history. Any righteousness that we have is anchored in Christ, comes from Christ, is founded and grounded on Christ. And so God fulfills his promise to the Messiah, who is the true righteous one, from whom any of our righteousness comes. He fulfills his promise to him by keeping all of his bones intact. And this is why we preach the righteousness of Christ. We preach our own depravity, our own incompetency, our own sinfulness, and we rest and trust and ground and found our faith in the Lord Jesus Christ alone. Brothers and sisters, may your hearts be encouraged by these words. May we be knit together in the love of Christ as we seek to reach all the riches of full assurance of understanding and knowledge which is available to us in Christ alone. Thank you.